bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, October 8th, 2019. Now, one year ago today, the IRS released a draft of Form 3468 for the 2018 tax year. Now, that form, the Form 3468, confirmed that the federal store tax credit would be taken at 4% per year over five years. Now, the change was based on tax reform legislation that passed at the end of 2017 that said that the credit would be taken ratably over five years. We didn't quite know what ratably meant. 4% a year for five years is what the Form 3468 said it was. Now, as you know, before that, the entire 20% credit was available for the year in which the historic tax credit property was placed in service. Now, a transition rule allowed the previous rules to apply to buildings that began their 24-month or 60-month period of substantial rehabilitation no later than June 20, 2018. But the credit is to be taken over five years for any other development. Now, my partner, Tom Boscia, had an article about the transition rule in the September issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. I will include a link to that article in today's show notes and tweet it out. And if you have questions about whether that your property is eligible under the transition rule, I'd urge you to contact Tom. He's in our Cleveland, Ohio office. Turning to this week's podcast, I want to let you know about several developments with respect to the Opportunity Zones Incentive and remind you of a great way to stay informed. Then, I want to talk about what happened at our affordable housing conference in New Orleans last week, as well as share news about new forms from the National Council of State Housing Agencies, and I'll let you know about a milestone development for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And then I'll wrap things up with news about an updated new market tax credit application, federal energy legislation that's been introduced, as well as an interesting approach to opportunity zones in Wisconsin. If you're ready, let's get started. Now, let's start with some Opportunity Zones news. The IRS last week released draft forms as well as draft instructions for two forms that relate to Opportunity Zones. Now, the first draft form is of Schedule D. That's for the individual Form 1040. Schedule D, as you likely know, covers capital gains and losses. Well, the draft includes new instructions that deal with the disposal of a Qualified Opportunity Fund or QAF investment. The instructions specifically tell taxpayers to use Form 8997 to report dispositions of QAF investments. Now, you may recall that I talked in more depth about Form 8997 in last week's Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Now, the other draft form is 1099-B. This addresses proceeds from broker and barter exchange transactions. That form is for calendar year 2020, while the Schedule D is a draft for 2019. The Form 1099-B adds a box for brokers to check if they receive proceeds from the sale of an interest in a Qualified Opportunity Fund. The instructions tell any broker who files a Form 1099-B that they also must furnish a statement to the recipient. Once again, this, that draft is for 2020. Now, the new forms aren't huge developments themselves, but they continue the steady pace of progress on implementing the Opportunity Zones incentive and giving practical guidance to taxpayers. Now, another more substantial development is that the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council launched a website. It's a website for stakeholders, and it was launched last week. The website is www.opportunityzones.gov. Now, this website is designed to serve as a hub of information for residents, qualified opportunity funds, and more. 
The site will also include a list of action items for each agency that's part of the White House Opportunity Revitalization Council. Now, Scott Turner, the executive director of that council, is going to be at our Opportunity Zones conference in Chicago, but I'll talk more about that in a bit. Now, the next move is Treasury's release of updated regulations for Opportunity Zones. Now, that's expected in the next few weeks, although it will be longer until we actually see the updated regulations. Now, the delay is because Treasury must first send the updated regulations to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA. Now, usually OIRA takes 30 days to review and comment, about 30 days, maybe a little bit longer, to review and comment on regulations before releasing them to the public. So we're expecting that the updated regulations will be released sometime around Thanksgiving, if we're fortunate. Now, with that in mind, I have written on the Notes from Novogratic blog about issues that need clarity or to be changed in the updated regulations. Now, these are issues that the Novogratic Opportunity Zones Working Group has identified and commented on to Treasury in writing. Now, there are going to be two blog posts, not one, because there's too much to cover. The first blog post covers issues that concern investors and qualified opportunity funds themselves, as well as affordable housing. The second blog post, which we're going to publish shortly, will cover issues related to Opportunity Zones business property, as well as Opportunity Zones businesses. Now, I'll share the link to the first blog post in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. And then I'll also tweet out a link to the second blog post when it's available. And this is a good chance for me to remind you that we are going to be discussing these issues and a lot of other items at the Novogratic 2019 Opportunity Zones Fall Conference, and that's just a few weeks away. Our, one of our keynote speakers is going to be Dan Kowalski. Now, Dan is counselor to the Secretary of Treasury, where his duties include overseeing guidelines and reporting for the Opportunity Zones incentive. Now, Kowalski has spoken at previous Novogratz conferences and always provides important updates and context for what's happening. Now, I do expect Dan will give us a better sense as the timing of the release of the updated regulations, as well as what else is coming from Treasury regarding Opportunity Zones. Now, Dan Kowalski's keynote will be on Friday morning, and we're fortunate to have another keynote on Thursday morning. As I said earlier, Scott Turner from the White House Opportunity Revitalization Council will be at the conference. He's going to be providing a keynote on Thursday morning. Now, also at the conference, we're welcoming Alfonso Costa, HUD's Deputy Chief of Staff. Now, that's not all. At the conference, we will share another update about how much capital has been raised for Opportunity Funds. Now, at the time of this recording, Novogratz is tracking more than 264 funds, and we're working doggedly to collect information about their fundraising and investment plans so we can share that with conference attendees. The conference will also feature plenty of practical discussion as to how qualified opportunity funds, investors, businesses, and others are dealing with the multiple questions and how they're navigating the current terrain such that they can raise money, close funds, and most importantly, invest in opportunity zones. Now, there is still time to register. The date of the conference is October 24th and 25th. It's in Chicago. Now, I will include a link to the conference in today's show notes, and I'll tweet it out as well. I do encourage you to register now and make your hotel reservation. And while we're on the topic of conferences, Novogratic recently hosted the Credit and Bond Financing for Affordable Housing Conference in New Orleans. It was held last week. I want to share some highlights from the conference. 
Now we open the conference by honoring the 2019 winners of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits Developments of Distinction Awards. The awards honor excellence in affordable rental housing using the low-income housing tax credit and or tax credit developments using HUD financing. So who are the winners? Well, the 2019 winners were Bayside Apartments in New York City. That's for the preservation of existing public housing category. Also, Mount Baker Village Preservation in Seattle. That was for the preservation of existing affordable rental housing. Another winner, Village at Westerly Creek 3 in Aurora, Colorado. That was the category of family housing. And for rural community impact, the winner was Big Chair Lofts in Thomasville, North Carolina. And for the metropolitan community impact, we have Boulder Pines Community Campus in Las Vegas. And the Orchard in Santa Ana, California won the special needs category. Congratulations to this year's winners. Now, after the awards presentation at the conference, our Washington Report panel discussed the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act and the bill's potential paths to enactment, at least parts. Now, as you know, the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act is bipartisan, bicameral legislation that would make a number of enhancements and improvements to the low-income housing tax credit. Now, two of the bill's headline provisions are a 50% allocation increase, as well as a 4% minimum rate for the low-income housing tax credit for taxes and bonds and acquisition credits. Now, by the way, Novogratz does estimate that enacting the 50% allocation increase would finance an estimated 384,000 additional affordable homes over 10 years. The Novogratz also estimates that a 4% minimum credit rate would create an estimated 66,000 additional affordable homes over the next 10 years. So, there's the number of congressional working days is winding down in 2019. That said, there are at least four potential vehicles for this legislation to catch a ride. There could be a technical corrections bill, there could be a tax extenders bill, there could, though not likely, be an infrastructure bill, and probably the most significant, there is going to be, at some point, a fiscal year 2020 appropriations bill and or a continuing resolution. Now, I say that an infrastructure bill is highly unlikely to be enacted this year because there are really too many details to negotiate and there's really not enough time or enough appetite in Congress to do so. Now, the panelists did say that parts or provisions of the Forbidding Credit Improvement Act are more likely to be included in technical corrections, tax extenders, or appropriations legislation, or even more likely, some combination of all three. Now, David Gasson, who was at, on the Washington Report of Housing Advisory Group and Boston Capital, said that the pressure of the upcoming election year could actually work in favor of affordable housing legislation. Legislators are eager to have accomplishments that they can show off before 2020. Now, because the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act has bipartisan support, there's a good chance that provisions, some provisions from the legislation will be attached to a must-pass legislative vehicle. Now, another session at the conference was designed for the affordable housing developers that are interested in the Opportunity Zones incentive. My partner, George Littlejohn, moderated a session on considerations, tax considerations and others, to be having and bearing in mind when you're combining affordable housing and Opportunity Zones. The consensus of the panel was that anyone interested in pairing the two incentives should start with a good real estate transaction first and then see if layering in the Opportunity Zones incentive makes sense. Now, as my partner George said, 
the opportunity zones incentive is not going to make a bad real estate transaction good, but it can make a good real estate transaction better. Now another session was a case study of the average income test. The average income set aside was enacted under the Omnibus Appropriations Bill in 2018. Now the set aside allows a taxpayer to designate income limits that average to no more than 60% of the area median income. Essentially, it gives properties an opportunity to offset lower rents with higher ones, higher income residents with lower income ones. Now with the average income test being relatively new, there are some areas of ambiguity. Now the IRS does intend to issue guidance on this new set-aside election as indicated on the IRS priority guidance list. Now the panelists discussed what issues they'd like the IRS to clarify in guidance, such as can an owner or does an owner have the flexibility to redesignate units as a resident population and markets change? Also, if there's an instance of non-compliance, does the property's average income need to be recalculated? Now, as practitioners await IRS guidance, state agencies are interpreting the legislation and developing their own policies as to how they plan to monitor compliance for the average income test. I'd say the main takeaway from the panel which you need to work closely with your state agency to ensure you understand the state's compliance monitoring policies regarding the average income test, and make sure also to involve an experienced consultant early in the process, and then obviously keep your investor informed. Now overall, the conference spurred a lot of great discussions of affordable housing topics. I want to say thank you to our attendees, to our co-hosts, and our sponsors for making the conference such a success. Now, in other affordable housing news, the National Council of State Housing Agencies has released revamped model forms, and they released them last week, for low-income housing tax credit compliance monitoring. Now, the idea is for state agencies that oversee low-income housing tax credit compliance to standardize their monitoring practices. Standard pro practices create efficiencies for owners of low-income housing tax credit properties and others involved in overseeing compliance, including the states themselves. Now, simply put, owners of properties in multiple states are better off if the compliance oversight is similar across states and compliance monitoring agencies. Rather than have state-to-state -state variations, in-state-to-state -state recommendations is to follow the models, the model forms. Now, in-state-to-state's release model forms include an owner certification of continuing program compliance, a tenant income certification, an employment verification, as well as four other forms. Now the revisions include changes that were necessitated by the creation, enactment of the average income test, minimum set aside, as well as student rule exemptions and the Violence Against Women's Act provisions. Now the updates also include questions about gig economy jobs uh, and financing received from such things as GoFundMe. Now, state agencies can adapt the form to their circumstances. Now, I want you to know there is a link to the updated forms in today's show notes, and I'll tweet out the link as well. And let me also say to NCCJ, thank you for taking the lead in this matter and releasing model forms. Now, in other affordable housing news, the Treasury Department and the Federal Housing Finance Agency did announce last week that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac would be allowed to retain significantly more earnings. Now both had been restricted to $3 billion in capital reserves. Excesses had to be returned to Treasury. Now, Fannie can retain up to $25 billion, and Freddie can retain up to $20 billion. 
Now, it may sound a bit like an accounting issue, but there's more to it. The $3 billion caps were put on Fannie and Freddie, jointly called government-sponsored enterprises, or GSEs, when they entered government conservatorship in 2008. Now, the increases, these increases, the $25 billion and $20 billion, were recommended in Treasury's Housing Finance Reform Plan that was released in September. Now, these are significant because they are a major step towards moving the GSEs out of conservatorship. Now, the new amounts are not nearly enough capital for Fannie or Freddie to be released from conservatorships because most experts suggest that they need at least $100 billion each if they are to be released from conservatorship. But again, this is a first step. Now, for those in affordable housing, the GSEs are very important. Both have affordable housing goals that they must meet, much of which comes through specific targets for loan purchase financing units for low-income and very low-income families, as well as small multifamily properties affordable to low-income families. Both Fannie and Freddie set aside 4.2 basis points of their annual new business to fund the Housing Trust Fund and Capital Magnet Fund. Furthermore, each is targeting investing up to $500 million in low-income housing tax rate equity each year for a total of $1 billion. So when Fannie and Freddie are healthy, it's good news for affordable housing. Now this is a big week in news, and there's still more. The City Five Fund last week released an updated new market tax rate application, as well as a FAQ document for the calendar year 2019 round that is open. Now the application update includes new questions and details that will be helpful. For example, the application has more information about what constitutes a qualified low-income community investment closing. It also provides examples. New questions in the FAQ document include how the CDFI fund calculates whether an applicant meets the qualified equity investment issuance and qualified low-income community investment thresholds, and how a community development entity applicant should handle the application if it has requested a modification to its service area but doesn't yet know the outcome. Now, as you're working through your new markets tax credit application and have questions, I do encourage you to reach out to my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Metro Atlanta office. Now, in energy and affordable housing news, legislation was introduced in both the House and the Senate last week that includes a provision to reinstate the Section 45L credit. What is that credit? Well, that's the credit for energy-efficient homes, and the legislation would increase the credit from its current or its expired $2,000 level to $2,500. I say expired because the Section 45L credit expired at the end of 2017, so now it's part of the package of expired extenders that are part of the tax extenders discussion back in Washington, D.C. Now, this credit is often used by affordable housing developers, and that's because it applies to multifamily buildings that are three stories or less. Now, the credit has helped close many a financing gap. And then finally, in state-level news, a bill was introduced in the Wisconsin Assembly to increase the tax benefit for investors in qualified opportunity funds that hold at least 90% of their assets in Wisconsin Opportunity Zones projects. Actually, it's probably more accurate to say that the funds hold at least 90% of their assets in Wisconsin Opportunity Zones business property or Wisconsin Opportunity Zones businesses. Now, Wisconsin already conforms to the Internal Revenue Code concerning Opportunity Zones, 
But this legislation, SB 440, would grant an additional 10% capital gains tax reduction for investors who hold their investment in a Wisconsin-centered Qualified Opportunity Fund for five years, and investors who hold their investment in a Wisconsin Qualified Opportunity Fund for seven years would see that benefit increase to an additional 15% capital gains tax reduction or gain exclusion. However, any federal penalty assessed to an Opportunity Fund for failure to meet the 90% test would also result in a state penalty equal to a third, 33% of the federal penalty. Now, if you have any questions about this Wisconsin proposed incentive, please contact Novogradic's Jason Watkins. He's in our Dover, Ohio office. Well, that brings you to the end of this week's report. Now, we talked earlier about our Opportunity Zones conference in Chicago, but I want to remind you, in addition to that conference, that next week is the Novogradic 2019 New Marcus Tax Credit Fall Conference. It's being held in Austin, Texas. Now, it's being held October 17th and 18th, and it comes at a great time since we're moving through the calendar year 2019 application period. We're also excited to let you know that the keynote speaker is Senator Steve Daines from Montana. He's one of the 30 co-sponsors in the Senate of the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act. Now, there are plenty of other sessions to educate, inform, and help you make connections in the community development world. A registration link for the conference is in today's show notes, and of course, I'll tweet it out. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.